come to mind, monkeys are like, who am I to write a book? I'm not an author. You know, none of us are born with fears. So the opposite of that is when did you feel most alive and energized? <laughs> that, that's a lot deeper than I was expecting today. That's, Sorry, that's my job. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of a strange one on today's Engaging Marketeer because I am interviewing the person who coached me on doing a TEDx talk. It, it, it's like I'm, I'm, I'm interviewing my teacher. Uh, so when I did my TEDx University of Chester talk, Cat Williams was the coach for all of the TEDx speakers uh, because she was also a TEDx speaker herself and is a speaking coach and professional speaker. So I'll be asking Kat about how she got into professional speaking, what happened when she did her TEDx talk some years ago, and what she's doing with her, her business right now and what she considers the importance of storytelling within within marketing. As you've mentioned, you're, you're, you're obviously very, very big on stories and, and, and speech and how it sells and how people sort of engage with that. Yes. What got you into that? How, how early in your, your life did you understand that that was, that was important? Well, there's lots of examples, but the one that's just come into my mind, actually, that what a lot of listeners won't know, even if they've ever crossed me before, is that I began as a physiotherapist and so when I say, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves are so important, the reason for that is I, I was in an orthopedic ward after I'd graduated and all the way down one side of the ward were people with knee replacements and all the way down the other were people with hip replacements. <laughs> I realised very quickly the reason I only survived as a physiotherapist for 14 months was because what instantly fascinated me was what was going on above the neck. You know, I'd mm. spent three years learning all about really what was below the neck, obviously brain and the nerves you know however the story that people were telling themselves in those hospital beds could be entirely different one from the next from the next even though their injury the operation they'd had of a knee replacement hip replacement was the same and what I realized very quickly is I'm a psychologist really here my the way the words that I use to motivate people have to match the story that they're telling hmm. so for example I would be called one person would say oh here she is, the physio-terrorist. Oh, it's going to hurt. Oh, leave me alone. I don't want to do it today. And I'd think, how interesting. They see me as the physio-terrorist. Go away. You're going to be, because it was my job about when they were released. You know, not released, sounds like prison. But I was the person that signed the discharge. It's the physio, not the consultant. He's mm. done his job, the surgeon. So the you, had, you had the power. Whether you go home or not is down to me. Can you function? Can you walk the distance of the ward? Can you climb stairs? Are you going to be able to get in and out of your car, you know, and all of that? So I thought you're going to be in an extra five days because you're telling yourself that I'm unhelpful to you. Whereas, of course, the other person would be going, yes, what is it you want me to do? So it, it may sound as we go on to understanding what I do now, it actually began with that frustration of kind of mindset is everything the mm. words that people are using is everything how are they describing themselves and their situation how are they describing me i love that the physio terrorist physio terrorist <laughs> and you were keeping them captive from their everyday lives <laughs> yes. refusing to release them unless they completed tasks well, yeah it was powerful <laughs> <laughs> there's a film in that somewhere in fact, i think there already is a film in that oh. <laughs> so <laughs> where, where, where did you go from there then how, how did you end up well, how did you stop being a uh, physio terrorist well that goes into the story of of the military life so of course yes so if i kind of tell you a really a story about i'm all about building confidence mm. so i think what i would like you know your listeners to know is there was a time when if if you think about that frustrating moment when you know you're getting in your own way you know that you kind of want to do something, but, but something's holding you back. Or even harder, I think, to watch is seeing the potential in someone else that they don't seem to be able to see in themselves. Mm. So a moment that that was very real for me, I'd already been a therapist. I, I said what I went out of you know, the NHS world and into the therapy world. But there was a moment in time when it was we're going back to 2012 I'm living up in Inverness and I'm standing in, in the kitchen of an army quarter. And if anyone's ever been in army quarters or knows anything to do with the military, they're all painted the same colour. They're all magnolia. So they're all the same inside and you're living on what's called a patch. You know, everybody's either behind the wire or the houses are the same. And, 
you know, I've chosen this life of a military wife because I thought I knew what to expect, but I'm, you know, really not feeling confident. And out of the corner of my eye is a, a splash of red and it on the, on the kitchen wall that I've put there. And it's this poster that says, keep calm and carry on. And I'm like, who the hell put that there? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I am not calm. Because my husband's on the front line in Afghanistan. And I know that any minute of any day, I've got seven months of 24 hours a day, not knowing if the knock on the door is going to be the army chaplain, the army welfare officer saying he's not coming home. So I was asking myself, what's the difference there? You know, those that are listening hopefully can relate to this, that there can be situations that people are sharing, but the difference between how, whether they sort of rise through the ashes or are destroyed by it is quite interesting. So I was already a counsellor, you know, qualified through the army, but I had some fellow military wives kind of self-medicating through this. They literally just took themselves to bed or, you know, just kind of zoned through it somehow. And others that seemed to be thriving. And I thought, I don't know how personally, I think I'm not sure how to cope with this. So I started kind of interviewing and, and picking up lots of tips and strategies and thinking, you know, what's the secret to, to coping with whatever life throws at you? And I was kind of writing all these bits of paper down. And then I realized, well, you know, I'm always writing a book here. <laughs> you know? mm. And then I thought, gosh, could this be a book? You know, could this support other people? But then coming to the point of holding ourselves back, um, of course, I got in my own way, you know, as we do. And in come the mind monkeys are like, who am I to write a book? I'm not an author. It's It wouldn't be good enough. No way. You know, who do I think I am? Secondly, um, I just don't have the time. You know, I had two small children. They're five and two. I'm living up in the Highlands. I've got enough going on, all the rest of it. I haven't got time to write a book. And, you know, and thirdly, it wouldn't, wouldn't be good enough anyway, whatever I was thinking. Until I saw an interview with um, Eddie Izzard on the TV. And he was talking about, you know, Eddie Izzard, flamboyant clothing. He was doing the sports relief challenge of 30 marathons in 30 days. I remember that. He was being interviewed, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. mm. And he said he knew that he'd have to get out of his own way, that it would be his mind that would talk him out of completing this challenge far more than his body. Because he knew that if Maasai warriors in you know, Kenya could run marathons every day, then his body could do it as well. So he was talking about the power of the mind and he said, you know, the mind's job is to keep you safe and alive. So I've got to give it the instructions. I want this. I can achieve this. This is good for me. This is what I want. He knew also that it only works in pictures and words. So he had to kind of see himself crossing every line, see himself taking every step in order for his mind to accept that that was possible. And he knew that the mind doesn't like what's unfamiliar. So if he could make it familiar, he could achieve it. So hopefully you're hearing in that story, I was telling, that was a story I was telling myself, you know, I, I can't do this, this is painful, this is unfamiliar to me, I can't be an author because I've never done it before. And when I realised I could use those strategies, so part of what I do now is, is teach people those rules of the mind. I'm now a clinical hypnotherapist, I didn't know any of this at the time, but, but that took me on a journey of understanding how and linking back to the physiotherapist this story we're telling ourselves is very important to be the leader of your own mind otherwise it leads you mm. so that's how it kind of then took me on a on a journey the book came out a year later um I did write that book it's actually here based on the keep calm and carry on poster so you can see stay calm and content no matter what life throws at you it turned into that pain turned into a purpose and and it came out and that then led to a TEDx talk, which led to becoming more of a speaker, which led to me going on just more of a development journey as a therapist and a speaker. And it ultimately brought me here today, really. Mm. It, it's interesting. One of the things you said there was, um, I'm not an author. And it's like even J.K. Rowling wasn't an author until she wrote the first book. Yes. Yeah. And whatever follows I am is that story again. You know, mm. so a lot of the job I do is to sort of say, if if you say, you know, I hate running, I'm not a runner, why would you run? Whereas as soon as you literally say, I am a runner, even if you're just like, you say, you know, you've never been a runner before, the minute mm. you say, I'm a runner, well, a runner's going to run, even if that means, you know, 100 metres slowly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're, I'm a runner, therefore yeah. let's go out and run. Yeah. yeah. And you, you mentioned the TEDx talk that you did there. What What made you want to do that? Because it's a frightening thing to do. It's very frightening. 
Well, again, going going right back, if I'm honest, I've always known there's a performer in me. Part of my clinical hypnotherapy training is actually going back to kind of happy moments. A lot of what I help people with, well, it's all that I do is release people from fears. And part of that is identify what energizes you the most. So coming back to the, the TEDx in a second, but when I've undergone my own, I take people back to when their fears weren't there. You know, none of us are born with fears. So the opposite of that is when did you feel most alive and energized? And really strangely, under some of my own like practice therapy sessions, I went back to this strange memory where I was having lipstick put on my nose. And I thought, it's very odd, you know, and I was like, oh, I'm four years old because it's all there in your subconscious, even if you can't consciously remember these things. I was like, okay, and you know, my, my colleague is saying, okay, what's happening? I'm like, oh yeah, the primary school teacher's putting lipstick on my nose, I'm four. And it's because I'm Rudolph in the Christmas play. And it's always about feelings, what's going in the body. So how are you feeling? And I'm like, absolutely amazing. I feel absolutely energized. Like, I'm gonna be the main part. I'm gonna stand on the stage and I'm gonna love it. So I could tell you a different version of accidentally ended up with a TEDx talk, but the truth is, I knew I belonged on the stage. I just mm. hadn't really had that opportunity. It was The door wasn't opened for me. It kept being closed in my face. But if I go back to being a four-year-old, I was like, I love it. That's where I ought to be. So I did just take those opportunities and gradually make that familiar, coming back to, you know, the mind doesn't like what's unfamiliar until you keep making it familiar. So I just said yes and thought mm. something is telling me I need to take this opportunity, even though I'm not ready, even though there's no <laughs> coaching at all um I just said yes <laughs> you knew you belonged on the stage not <laughs> yeah. not you think not I should have a go you knew you belonged yes I love that I love that and did you have to apply for the TEDx talk or was it a case of you you were to, I want you to do this so it was a phone call one day a fellow counseling colleague of mine back then she saw this poster and said Kat, I think you you should be one of the speakers. So I just rang the number she gave me and they said, sure, really. <laughs> but this is a long time ago. And I know that most mm. TEDx, anyone watching this now that or listening that's done a TEDx would probably be kind of, that's not how it works now. That's not how it works. <laughs> but as yeah, we we met, didn't we, through a through the TEDx Chester, mm. and that's part of my story of my coaching on that TEDx event was exists or consisted of having a microphone put on me and told where to stand, you know, mm. that was it. So no, there was no audition, there was no nothing. I just practiced over and over in my conservatory on my own, turned up, microphone on, stand there, that was it. And how did you feel not having any training or was it was it the fact that you didn't know any different because know. obviously you hadn't done one before? Didn't know any different. My, my husband, a picture, he's still in the military, he's an army officer, travels a lot, and he'd picked up a book that said, talk like Ted, in an airport lounge, and so, you know, he said, there you go, <laughs> gave that a bit of a read, watched some TEDx or TED Talks, and thought, yeah, you know, I can do that. <laughs> mm. Look back now with, with horror, you know, I'm, I'm half proud of it, but obviously, I think that's the message, isn't it, that you, I think, you know, that you're getting through a lot of your um, videos, hopefully, that, like you said, J.K. Rowling wasn't an author before she was an, an author. So mm. I'm proud of just going for it. We've all got to start somewhere. Yeah. So if I did a TEDx now, it would be a lot better, hopefully. <laughs> well, you, you said you're half proud of it. What what of the talk? And, and I'll put the link in the below the video and below the <laughs> podcast so people can see it. But <laughs> what about it would you do differently or were you not happy with? Just you can see the nerves, I suppose, you know, the self-doubt. Again, the diff the work that I do now helping people to release the limiting beliefs. When I watch that, I can see the limiting thoughts and beliefs that are there, that are sort of shown in my shallow breathing, um, in my, you know, holding myself very stiffly. So I'm proud of the message I'm convey I'm proud of doing everything I can in that moment but the person I always kind of say I I'm we're born with natural confidence so I help people to sort of set that free and you can see that I'm held back by mm. the past and, and really that's that was about like I said it was a closed door to me I was given messages like 
um, I was 15 years old and I thought about going for head girl because you had to sort of put your name in or something. And my form teacher said, hmm, Catherine, as I was then, not Kat, you know, Catherine. Oh, I don't know. I think you're a bit shy. You know, I don't think you could do the public speaking. I don't think really you should go for this because the head girl's going to have to speak in assemblies. You know, and that's these little, and then my parents came to watch performances. I'd been in a theatre camp and they came and watched them and I wanted them to see this potential. And they were like, oh, yeah, lovely, dear. Right then, let's go home. You know, it's cottage pie for tea. Just no acknowledgement that, like, this is my heart and soul that I've just put on the stage and, mm. and you just don't see it. So it, it was just breaking through all of that stuff that I can see I was still held back by that. I, I'm, I'm, now you mentioned that, it reminded me of something that, that happened to me, and I'm wondering why people that have influence over children do this. That My, my art teacher once told me, don't do art at A-level because you're not good enough. And I did it just to spite him. And I ended up going on to do a diploma in art and getting a distinction uh, and then doing a an arts degree. And I now run a web design agency, have done for the last 14 years. So up yours, Mr. Lawton. Um, why do people do that, do you think, to, to kids? Why are they tr- stamping on basically kids' ambitions, kids' dreams? Well, we make our decisions based on just two things. Um, love or fear you know like what we care about or what we're afraid of so in my opinion well and I know that that when people go back to moments like that if you went kind of back to that and you know kind of on an unconscious level you would see that the fear of the teacher the teacher was driven by their own fear and limiting beliefs and they were sort of Mm -hmm. trying to protect you from failing essentially so they want to then put you in this protective cage. Well, if I hold you back and tell you that, you know, you're going to fail, then I'm kind of saving you from failing, which is like, mm. no, but that's just screwed up. You know, don't, that just holds you back. Like, why not say, give it a try? It, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you fail. The most important thing is trying because you care about it. And that's, again, what I love about everything in this world is, is energy, you know, and you've got to go with what energizes you the most because at least if you aim for that and land close to it, then you're going to love what you do, mm. hopefully. <laughs> so that's the thing. I, I would have loved to join the Royal Ballet. You know, I was an 11-year-old that wrote to the Hammond School in Chester and asked to go. I mean, and again, I, I'd kind of blocked that out until I do this job now of, of hypnotherapist. You block these things out. And so it sort of came back to me one day and I was like, good grief, I did. You know, I wrote at 11 years old. I wrote, what kind of child does that? Well, the child that wants to break out and, and wants to be on the stage but has no support. And, of course, they wrote this lovely letter back going, here's the, prescri- here's the prospectus and here's our fees. You know, and I'm mm. kind of going, oh, yeah. so you're not going to wave a magic wand then and just say, sure, come on in. We'll help mm. you get to throw a ballet school. But my point is that I'm close now to that dream. I, I can't be on the West End stage. I can't be in the Royal Ballet. But I'm a performer. And I love nothing more now than writing my own script, telling my own story and helping other people to tell their story as they hear mine. What do you want your story to be? Mm. What are you help, being held back by that you want to get rid of? And going back to the, the TEDx, when you came up with the idea for the story that you were going to do, mm. obviously TED is very very clear on what the story needs to be and the, and the impact it needs to have, that it needs to be like a, a big idea or a new way of thinking. How did you apply what you wanted to do to that? And, and did you have any concerns that, again, was it worthy? I can't remember how I came up with the idea. <laughs> and, and because I'd had no conversation about that, I was left to my own devices, honestly. Oh, right. So it's just go for it. You just... Yeah, no, it was. It, I knew there was sort of you know, be engaging, be different, bring something different. Um, But where I went with that, if people do watch it, it's called Toilet Seat Therapy, what to do when you don't know what to do. So the idea came from my knowledge as a therapist of, um, you know, as I've mentioned, the book of stay calm and content no matter what life throws at you. I just, this military life that I've lived in for 20-odd years, the stories of all of the people that are coping with, everything you can imagine you know I've I don't think I could be surprised by anyone's story anymore because I've heard pretty much the lot I reckon but I know one thing and that's that sometimes the only place you can be on your own is like in the loo lock the door you know and 
I was inspired by another story that I might tell you in a minute, but if you have just five minutes to yourself. So that was the inspiration of like, sometimes you just need five minutes to yourself. What is going on in my life outside of that door? Because the way I walk out and handle that is up to me. So that inspiration was called it toilet seat therapy. And I used the mirror, the floor, the ceiling, the sink to represent kind of strategies, mindset strategies, really questions you can ask yourself so that when you walk back out of the door, you've kind of processed what's going on and how you're going to handle it. Mm. That was it. <laughs> it. Yeah, well, I think we, we probably all use, uh, without going too graphic, we all use the toilet as a means of escape sometimes. Well, that was the point, yeah. Particularly if you've got kids. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And that was, again, the inspiration. My children were little. Yeah. The only door, yeah, the only lock inside the house. It's on the toilet door, so run away, lock the door. Give me five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Although most guys listening to this, five minutes, no, 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 45 minutes minimum. Yeah, I didn't have 45 minutes in a TEDx. So. Well, sadly, no. <laughs> I couldn't do the man version of the toilet seat therapy. <laughs> yeah, I had to I'll do be, the 18 minutes or less version. Be out in an hour or maybe more, <laughs> I'm not sure. Depends how long the battery on my phone lasts. Um, you mentioned that there, there was a story that, improv- that um, inspired it. Yes, I won't get my facts right exactly, but I don't know if you've ever watched Snooker. I, um, I watch Snooker all the time, yes. <laughs> so you might know better than me, but I do know that it was a chap that was losing something like, how many frames is it in Snooker to be the world champion? 20? In the final, uh, it's 18, I think you need to win okay. in the final. Well, he was losing something like 3 to 12. I don't know, a lot. And he hmm. said in a BBC I think, um, five live interview, you know, they asked him, how did you turn that around? You know, you were losing <laughs> halfway through, whatever it was. And he, and it just chimed with me because I think I'd either just recorded the toilet seat therapy or I knew I was building up to it. And he said, well, I kind of popped the loo, basically. I took five minutes, had a word with myself, you know, and came out in a different mindset. Mm. And I'm like, uh, oh, <laughs> you know, that's it. That, that's it. It made a difference between a world champion or not, you know. So that's what he said. <laughs> <laughs> There's been a lot of snooker world world finals where somebody has been ridiculously far ahead and then thrown it all away. And nobody really knows quite how that happens. Jimmy White's done it many times. Right. Well, they were focusing yeah, on the chap that caught up. So, I mean, yeah, you're right. Maybe the other mm. guy threw it away. I don't the know. The other guy bottled it, yeah. Not, not oh. that Jimmy White's a bottler, but um, famously never won the world title, despite being very, very close many, many times. Mm. Uh, so... When, once you've done your TEDx, how, how did that impact your your opportunities for, for speaking and for your business? I mean, not as much as you might think, I think. You know, I think everything can be part of the puzzle, but unless, or part of the picture, however you would put it, but unless, I think if I'm honest, I wasn't in the position to maximise that to its full potential, probably because of what I've said, that I was in a, a kind of invisible cage of my own beliefs so I didn't use that to its fullest potential I was kind of oh you know don't watch that um proud of it <laughs> but keep it in the background um so which you've, honestly, you just said today as well when I said I'll put the link below this you're yeah. like no no don't 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 do that yeah, exactly exactly mm. so you know I've been on my own journey of developing my voice that's you know, I have a build confidence program now and the D of the, of the build is develop your voice. And I am very passionate about helping people to overcome these self-limiting behaviours, really, of, mm. yeah, don't put the links there. Still got my own work to do. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes, I've, I have built on that step by step. And that inner drive and passion is very much still there. And that's part of the picture that has taken me forward into focusing more on a speaking business mm. so wh- where are you now with with speaking what what kind of work are you doing my main area is schools so i'm very energized by being i kind of describe i'm a kind of bookend so i work i work a lot with the one-to-one the sort of the big issues that people will will have that can turn into you know self-sabotaging behaviors panic attacks anxiety you know i'm in the mental health field as a rapid transformational therapist but the speaking side is about the prevention so I want to talk to any audiences as you know as large as possible about building confidence but obviously the younger the messages 
can can go in the better so I do a lot of work in in schools and hopefully moving forward into more keynote speaking to audiences all about building confidence and developing your voice and all that right yeah and how do you find school children as a as an audience because they're obviously very different to an adult audience or a business audience and I imagine, because I remember when I was in school, what I'd be like when a speaker came in, they wouldn't really hold back on the criticism, I'd have thought. Yes. And obviously, that's why I try and keep them engaged. I do activities with them, bring in the storytelling, because you're right, they haven't you bought a ticket to be there. They haven't chosen to be in that space at all. So you have to be worthy of their attention mm. is how. I would put it. And that's again why, you know, again, I'll be honest, there was a, a dream gig for, for me, I thought at the time of speaking to a room full of year 10 girls, so 15 year old girls. And I thought, oh, you know, what can I share that I wish I'd known at 15? But of course, I had, well, basically I felt sort of bruised at the end of that, not just because I hadn't made myself worthy enough of their attention. I don't feel I think I did a good enough job but that it really is always about wanting to improve and wanting to engage them more because that was a tough audience you know they weren't sort of sitting there going oh yeah you know tell us how to be more confident it was kind of like who's this woman <laughs> which is fair enough and, and how do you deal with that when you, you can see an audience slipping away from what you're saying pivot <laughs> so, you know <laughs> That's, that took me on the, the journey of telling better stories. Mm. It has to go with emotional engagement. So if I could go back now, and that's why everything that I do now is through the power of stories. So I would now tell them some of the, the stories of me at, at their age. And, hope. well, what happens is that they will be telling themselves their own story. That's how our mind works. If I engage them enough in hearing my story, because that's how we've evolved, you know, we everything we communicate really is through the power of storytelling and that's how we learn about each other the things that stick and we tell them on and on and on so the idea would be they would get to sort of know me and I would be worthy of their attention and at the same time they will be telling themselves their own story of how mine resonates with them and that's mm. how I would bring them with me and that, that's not easy to do is it well I can tell you a story of that I would tell them if you want to understand how I do, I think that would help because I mean I'm, I'm I've thought about doing school stuff myself because I, I remember when I, when I was in school, I still remember now a speaker that came in and and, and talked to us and it, it basically he was a poet, mm. and I've always remembered him until, until a few years ago I saw him on TV, and he still looks like he did when I was in school. So the guy has not aged, but it's a guy called Benjamin Zephaniah. Yeah, I heard from. He was the poet laureate as well. Yeah, and he was the coolest guy I've ever seen in school. I, I think it was like first year of high school, so I'd have been about twelve. And he's walking up and down the assembly stage, swigging from a bottle of water, literally spitting out his poems. And you can see from the the light coming in from the the windows above because we had really high windows and the, the the spit from the water that he's he's drinking as he's talking i thought this guy is just so cool he is so cool and then he's like really famous now you know he's he's, he's been in eastenders which i realized when i looked him up recently he was an actor in eastenders but I, that stayed with me for years right up till now so maybe 30 40 years however old i yeah 35 years that stayed with me and I would love to have that kind of impact on people. But again, I think, I'm not, I'm not Benjamin Zephaniah. I can't do that. But, you know, I could do me. So, yes, yes please. How do you tell a story that engages 15-year-olds and gets them to use their own experiences to, to relate to what you're saying? Well, let's see. So mm. let me see if I can do a good job of that. So... I'm taking you back to around well, 20, where are we, about six, seven years ago. We're going back to kind of 2017, something like that. And I'm going on some strength psychology training. And strength psychology is all about what energizes us. And the tutor said, he's called Graham, and he said, um, 
just go around the room and tell you a little bit yourself about, about yourselves and, and why you're here. So Kat, why don't you go first? And Graham looks like a kind of um, Steve Martin, <laughs> salt and pepper, gray hair, you know, nice guy, really kind of warm and welcoming. So I said, okay, Graham, well, I'm here because I'm a therapist and I know that not feeling good enough, lacking in confidence is the root cause of so many of my clients' issues. You know, everything stems from that. We call them protector parts, kind of anxiety, people-pleasing, imposter syndrome. They actually stem from this root cause of not feeling good enough. So I'm here on a strength on this strength psychology course to have a, a tool to really help my clients to see that they are enough. And he said, oh, that's all very lovely, Kat. That's great. But why are you here for you? I hadn't been asked that question. I was kind of, God, Graham, you got me there. You know, I'm a mother of two and a military wife and a therapist and got, we've just moved house and all. I'm like, here for me. Well, if, you know, if there is a dream that really I'm, I'm here to think about for myself, that door closed a long time ago, Graham. And in that moment, I was taken back to being 15 years old because I thought, what is it that I wanted that I've never felt I could have? So we're going back, I'm 15 years old and I'm standing next to a car with my parents and I've just been on a theatre camp for five days and I have loved every second. I have learnt the lines, we've painted the scenery, we've you know, come up with our own creations, we've learned acting skills, dance skills a lot and I have just loved it, felt so energised. I've like, And the final performance, I was playing a 15-year-old blind girl and as I said, I learned all the lines, left my heart and soul on the stage. But I remember thinking, like, maybe this will be the performance where my parents will recognise how much this matters to me. Maybe they'll see and support me in this dream. So I'm standing next to the car and I kind of go, um, you know, did, did, did you like it? Did, did, was, was, was I good? And my mum kind of turns and says, Gosh, lovely to these theatre folk, you know, do they have real jobs, do you think? How have they taken all this time off to be doing this with all these kids for a week? Gosh, Brian, did we say cottage pie for tea? I need to get um, broccoli on the way home. And I was just... So if I was back with those 15-year-old girls, I would then turn to them in that moment and say, have you ever felt you're unseen, kind of unsupported of you got a dream that nobody seems to be seeing a bit like you said with the art teacher that went don't do art they didn't you've not seen not understood not supported so back in that room with Graham this is true I, I turned to him that day and said do you know what I would like to know whether I have what it takes strength psychology is about discovering your natural strengths could I have what it takes to be a successful speaker and performer because I, I'm not sure I'm ever going to be good enough. That's that belief I picked up in that moment because if your parents don't think you're good enough, the belief goes in, I'm not good enough. So out came my top strengths, enthusiasm, creativity, empathy, compassion, flexibility, resilience and persuasion. They're shared by only one in four and a half million people in the same order. As I call it, that's your 5% genius. And Graham said to me, Kat, if those aren't the, you know, the, the strengths of a kind of potential natural speaker, you bring all of those, you are good enough, you are enough. So the message that would then go on to the 15-year-olds would be, you are 5% genius. Everybody is. We're now going to find your top seven strengths right now. We're going to do it together because whatever you want to do, you are enough. If you play to what energizes you, you play to what you already have within you, you can learn the skills, but you can't really be taught your natural strengths. So let's find out what they are. So I hope that would be engaging enough. <laughs> and the message obviously is I am now doing when I tell these stories, I am embodying my 5% genius in order to help you see your 5% genius right now. Let's do it. That's my story. Wow. What do you think? <laughs> no, well, no, I mean, I, 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 I <laughs> yeah, I, well, I can, I can see that working straight away. Yeah. The, I mean, we've all, I think we've all had experiences that you've just described there where you're expecting some praise for something you've done and 
a parent or someone just goes off on something that is just completely irrelevant because that's what they focus on and it's not what you expected. Um, yeah, well, it's we, not about you, but at the a, age that you are, you think it's about you. And I could tell you countless stories. You know, everything that I do one to one is all about those kind of stories. Who put the message there? Because it isn't true. Mm. You know, you're born with natural self belief, but it gets that things get in the way of it. That if you can then remove, you're like that was their fear, that was mm. their limiting belief, that was their issue that they that you took on because you didn't know at that age that it was theirs not yours that's mm. all, all what it's about mm. yeah you get told you can't do something so many times until you start to believe it mm. <laughs> until you can meet me and then i'm like let's get rid of all those invisible layers come on <laughs> Where, where's that person inside that just wants to shine so you you mentioned empathy then as as a an important aspect of a, of a speaker, I, I've done a personality profile, and I quite famously have it's either one percent or zero percent empathy, um, which I was quite proud of, and apparently I shouldn't be. Uh, I think it makes me borderline sociopath. But <laughs> do you need empathy as as a speaker, uh, did, or well, did, did you, did, do you need empathy? Is that, is that an important thing? Do do we, do we have to have this really? Where can I buy some? Yeah. <laughs> well, there's two answers that are coming to mind in that. First of all, I hope the message there of the seven strengths is that's the kind of speaker I am. Ah. Point is, everyone can, I believe everyone can be an effective speaker, mm. but you play to your, you know, whatever you bring means that it's a bit like, you know, there are very different varieties of doctors, teachers, engineers. If we bring who we are to the job that we do, that's our way of doing that job. So mm. that's all I'm saying that I'm, you know, an empathetic speaker, but it doesn't mean someone else will be more de detailed, strategic, you know, decisive, whatever. And then the second part, I use a, a tool called Strength Scope, and I have a creative strength, so I may be a little bit rogue here. But in my opinion, they have 24 strengths within this test. And in my opinion, we do actually all have them. So, yes, empathy might be naturally low, but it could just be that it hasn't been fostered particularly or developed. I don't I would say that, yeah, if you really didn't have any empathy, that would be kind of psychopathic narcissist, which I don't know. I know that you're not. So um, I'm, I think you have more than maybe you think you do. Well, the test was one or zero percent. Really? But yeah. My my eldest son actually said that I was a narcissist last weekend. But in an endearing in an endearing way. And he's been properly analysing it. He said, yeah, you you definitely, definitely a narcissist. And then he explained how I bring everything back to me, um, which I've just done now. So, yeah, maybe he has a point. Okay. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Enough of that. Let's, let's not deal with uh, with with Robbie's diagnosis of me. We don't need to know about that. Um, so, what kind of things do you think people need to do to successfully deliver a talk? What kind of tips would you be giving people? Because you gave me some. Yes, I did. Mm. First one thing I gave you was, well, never start with my name. It's Oh, you know, start with something engaging <laughs> with a question you know with so I always try and start what are mine is I think as I, I did today kind of think of a time that you held yourself back hmm. think of a time that someone else was getting in their own way you know it's asking the audience to do something straight away or something that surprises them so um I love telling the story of a chap I met networking who I'll meet lots of financial advisors networking, but he just nailed it. It was his first networking outing from what I understood afterwards. But he just began by kind of going, have you ever, you know, met someone who was so miserable in their job and, and they thought that they had to stay in it when actually they could retire, but they didn't realise it because of their finances. And we we're kind of like, oh, what? And he said, well, I want to tell you about why I'm a financial advisor. And he just went and told this whole story that was sort of heartbreaking about this poor chap that thought he was had to stay in this job and ended up hold, holding sorry handing his notice in the next day based on the financial assessment that this chap had done and so he was a perfect example he was chatting to me afterwards and said well oh, don't know if I like networking you know was I all right 
And I was like, God, Dave, you nailed it. Like, I don't remember any of the financial advisors that I've ever met. No disrespect to anyone listening, but because they would have said, my name's so-and-so and I'm a financial advisor and I work for this firm and we specialize in this and this, or I, you know, I've been doing it for X amount of years. And you're like, God, I won't remember any of that. But I've never forgotten this chat that told us about why he cared and mm. a story and he had me right from the beginning. So that would be my always first tip. And then another tip is to is to take people with you. So they need to sort of feel that emotion of, of really the pain of the kind of like, oh, you know, and, and then have a bit of the epiphany, the light bulb moment. So a bit like the story I told there of, you know, Graham was that light bulb moment when he listened to what I'd said and looked at the strengths and went, you already have within you, there's your 5% genius, you know, light bulb goes on. You want people to have that kind of experience when they're listening, hanging on, like, what happened next? What happened next? Mm -hmm. So I help people to, to find that because we all have them, but sometimes we don't know which, you know, how to match that story to the message that we want to deliver. That can be quite tricky, but it, but we can find them. Mm. Yeah. You, you mentioned networking right at the start of that. And there's, I go to a lot of networking events, as, as you know, and that so many people stand up and start with, hi, my name's Darren, and my company's called Engage Web, and we build websites, and blah, 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 blah. And then the next person do the same thing, and then the next person and the next person. They're taught to do that. This is the structure. You say your name, you say your company, what you do, and then you finish with your name. Nobody cares. Nobody's interesting. But if, as you say, if, if, if you stand up and you, you grab somebody mm -hmm. with something that's different, something that breaks the norm, something that's interesting or shocking or something they just didn't know, it gets their attention immediately. You don't need to be the, the templated. It, it just fits in with everything else. People don't remember what you say, but they remember how, how they feel. Exactly. And another lovely example, I was at a ladies' lunch the other week and Lynn from the Marnie Travel, with her little plug, she stood up and, and she said, um, when I was 10, I went with my granddad to a travel agent and he kind of left me there for a bit, you know, he was doing his thing and I was under a table or something, flicking through all these magazines and I was seeing, you know, all of these destinations and just... You know, and I couldn't believe it. Ten years old, it was like the best books I'd ever found. The pictures and these words. I'd never heard of Jamaica and I'd never heard of, I don't know, St. Kitts or whatever. And, of course, she went on to tell the rest of her story. And she's been a travel agent, you know, kind of since that day as a 10-year-old. She just was lit up like a Christmas tree going, look at this. And what a lovely thing to understand, you know, that she could have stood up and said, I'm Lynn and I will book your travel needs and I know this and I've been here and I'll save you money and all the rest. And we wouldn't have known why she cares. Yeah. We wouldn't have known anything about 10-year-old Lynn that went, I need to stay in this place and look at me and do this. Because imagine if I could do this every day. Yes. You know, and she nailed it, absolutely nailed it. Mm. What, do you know, I actually get annoyed when I go to networking events and every person one after the other does the same sort of templated response then one person stands out by doing something different why do you suppose it is that everybody just does that and doesn't doesn't engage people doesn't tell stories i think the word is spreading isn't it but it's just i don't know you know it's interesting it's you go to a phrase what you've seen i mean one of the rules of the mind is the mind likes what's familiar and it mm. struggles with what's unfamiliar so even though I've been saying kind of a lot in this chat, it's actually very familiar to tell stories. But somehow I think something happens between I, I tell a story about me and a lady at a bus stop. And I like to kind of tell that story because the, you and I now kind of over a coffee. And then so the person that you might speak to at the table at the networking over the coffee or, you know, while you're helping yourself to a drink is a very different person than then suddenly, so, oh, here's your two minutes to speak to the room. And it's like a different person stands up. Oh, hello, my name is. And you think, you know, I just chatted mm. to that person doing the coffee. What? They're like they've morphed into some sort of boring version of themselves. So that's really my message is when you tell a story as if you're just chatting, 
to a friend, that's your most engaging version of you. So try and bring that person Mm. into the, you know, but we somehow don't. It gets lost between, I think it's this, again, these beliefs, well, I need to appear professional and, you know, I shouldn't let my true self show. I've got to be, and it isn't true. I I think that's why I do this podcast the way I do it rather than have set questions because quite a few people have asked to send questions to them because they like to be prepared yeah. and have answers but I, I genuinely don't have any questions so I don't do that and I, I've listened to a lot of podcasts where they have a very strict format and like the first part before the break will be let's talk about your childhood and then it'll be let's talk about your business and let's let's talk about your music and it is very very rigid and you can tell it's not natural it's a little bit forced yeah. whereas just having a meandering conversation comes yeah, out with stuff that out- you things out of me today that I was would not have planned to say and that's the point though isn't it he's the point absolutely I there's things that I've just said today because they're the truth Mm. but if you'd asked me to script it no way would I be telling you all this stuff (laughs) (laughs) so well done (laughs) thank you I think (laughs) yeah I think (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) so what kind of businesses do you or, or people do you work with do you help I have kind of five key aspects. So I have um, five pillars, really, of confidence. Five pillars of confidence. Yeah, and they spell the word build. So B is be self-aware. So some people might bring me in to understand um, sort of lack of motivation maybe in the workplace. It might be mental health. So, you know, and it could be on a sort of small group level that we know there's people that are feeling very anxious. They've just you know, up-level, maybe promoted, and and they do have self-limiting beliefs or they've got imposter syndrome. That would be sort of the be self-aware. You know, as I said, our our decisions come down to love or fear, you know. So unless we're aware of our fears and limiting beliefs, we can't really overcome them. So it would be, that would be about that. Then the you is about utilise your strengths. So I might go in and that would be more about the strength psychology. Let's find everybody's 5% genius because that impacts communication, relationships, motivation. It really kind of lifts everyone. And they may not want the kind of deeper stuff. They might just want, you know, more motivational strength. So that could be a keynote speech or it could be a workshop. Um, Sometimes I get asked for the I, which is I'm okay, you're okay. I'm a relationship therapist. That's after physiotherapy. My first journey into the therapy world was the British Army paid for me to qualify through the charity Relate to support relationships. So I'm very, you know, I think um, mental health, everything we can talk about is is fine if we're individuals, almost in a bubble. But as soon as you bring relationships into it, everything can, you know, what about the colleagues? What about your family? So that's about um, relationships. The L is called Lead Your Mind. So I might get brought in to be to talk about mindset. And that's about we have a very powerful subconscious mind. We have 70,000 thoughts a day. 95% of them are subconscious. Most of those are negative. And when I told you the story about Eddie Izzard, that I now know the science behind that. He was talking about overcoming his mind monkeys. Well, the way I term it is if you think of the powerful subconscious mind as like a stallion, when it's triggered, it will be stronger than the horse rider. It will take over and it will just be led by fear. But you can learn to be like the horse rider of your own subconscious mind. You can say, I'm, you know, that I'm not my past. I am my future and you follow my instructions and not the other way around. So that's lead your mind or it will lead you. And then the D, I'm getting asked more and more to talk about develop your voice. So that's the D, which is, you know, whether you're a salesperson, whether you're um, a marketer, like whether you're gone up leveled and, you, and you're going for a job interview or promotion or you've become into a management role how you use your voice how you tell your stories you know we're all public speaking all the time whether that's on the phone whether that's just to a couple of colleagues whether it's giving a presentation whether it is going for interviews or promotions how do you tell your story so that people understand what you're energized by who you are and then it goes into that like know and trust kind of thing but that's really about developing your voice so overcoming a fear of public speaking and understanding how to tell your story. So those are the five, B-U-I-L-D. Become the horse rider of your unconscious mind or it will flee like a stallion. Absolutely. Do you say that normally or is that the first time you come up with that? 
No, I use that with every client. Do you use that? that. Yeah. Some obviously understand it more than others, but if you've ever been on a horse or ever kind of, if you get that, they're like, yeah. And the reason that is so impactful is because I say the same horse, you can see one just going crazy and then different rider could get on the same horse and you'd be going, it's like a different animal. How Mm. have you done that? Instantly, the horse just feels that they trust that rider. They know what they're doing. That's how our the clients I work with one-to-one with, that's the transformation they have. Mm. That's why it's called rapid transformational therapy. Because if you understand the fears that your own mind has picked up, coming back to what we've said, you know, you go back to key moments. What was that, what art, what was that art teacher saying to you? How did it make you feel? What belief did that install? Now let's go even younger, maybe. When when was the first time you started to feel not good enough, different, rejected? These are the things that our subconscious is protecting us from. We only arrive on the planet with two innate fears, two reflexes, fear of loud noises, fear of falling. We have a startle reflex. We have a reflex that turns our head to noise as a tiny baby. That's it. Everything else is learnt. So everything else is into this subconscious mind, but we're not our past. But that past subconscious programming will take over like a stallion unless we learn to be the horse rider and go, I get it, but I'm in charge now and we're going this way. I'm not going to let you lead me anymore. I'm leading you. And that's the power of storytelling, what you've done there. You've painted a picture now of 70,000 thoughts a day, did you say? Yes. Most of them negative. Most of them negative. And that's that's your stallion running away unless you, you tame it and take control of it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's incredible, the shifts of understanding, you know, it, it can have a, understanding is power. Once you understand, like, oh, gosh. So that, and I always say to people, this isn't you. This is your stallion trying to protect you. But the real you is underneath. And that's why I said at the beginning, if we go back to a happy memory first, when you didn't have any of this. Mm. And and sometimes people don't have that. Sometimes they actually don't have that, which is where the strength psychology come in. It's like, well, I'm going to tell, I know that you arrived 5% genius because every baby arrives with everything they need within them. We are the survivors of like 8,000 generations or something like that. There's no way that you're not good enough. You're the survivor of the survivor of the survivor. Like if you don't have what it takes to succeed on this planet, who does? Mm -hmm. And that's when I just chip away at that story that they've been telling themselves because it could be, I've heard heartbreaking ones. If you're adopted at birth, that belief, I had a chat about six months ago. Well, what, what belief did you come up with as a baby then as you're recognizing it now? I'm not wanted. I'm given away. You know, not everyone would maybe come up that belief. They may see it differently, but that's what he experienced that as. If my own yeah. mother doesn't want me, the world doesn't want me, and I'm not enough. Or maybe you're told, you know, I should have been a boy and I'm a girl, or I should have been a girl and I'm a boy. So from the very beginning, this message goes in, not wanted, not good enough. Wow. Big stuff. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a lot deeper than I was expecting today. That's, Sorry, that's my job. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You see your empathy. You wouldn't be able to have this conversation. You have empathy. <laughs> I, well, well, I've, I've, have I've, a chat with your son. I'm sure you have it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he wasn't questioning the empathy. He was questioning the. Um, I forgot the word again. What did he say? Narcissist. Narcissist. That I was the one. I specialise in those. So honestly, if anyone's listening, I a lot of my clients have narcissists in their lives mm. because it's it it really does in you know have that impact on them. Am I good enough? So, but I I'm not I'm not seeing one here and now. <laughs> well, speak to, <laughs> speak to Robbie. He seems to think <laughs> I am, but in a good way. He's fine with it. But there we are. Um, he surrounds himself with narcissists. I don't know why. Very, very strange lad, Robbie. Very strange lad. But there we go. Uh, so you're helping people with your, your build mechanism. Um, what ways do you do you work with them? Is this an online thing? Is this a face-to-face thing or, or a one-to-one? Well, as you kind of heard, I, love, I do love the performance. So mm-hmm. I do love the kind of the big stage. That's what I'm visualizing for myself. The mind works in pictures and words. So my choice would be to be live and, you know, to a room of people and Mm. just because lovely energy of that. However, I equally love being on webinars. So sometimes I'm asked, I'll be working, you know, I'm still a military wife. I'll be working over the next year with Recruit for Spouses and that will be the build program. And that's all going to be webinars of, of supporting fellow military spouses in their businesses I do quite a lot of work with small business Britain. That's all all webinar based. 
Um, so a combination, um, yeah, live and virtual. And you said you like webinars. I mean, I, I've done quite a few webinars, and I, I personally don't like it because you don't get that engagement. You don't get that reaction with the audience because a lot of the time you can't see them. Mm-hmm. unless it's done over a, a Zoom environment where you can see them, assuming they put their camera on, assuming they're looking at it. How does it compare between being on a stage and delivering a talk to a room full of 30, 40, 50 people as opposed to being on a webinar where you can't see anybody? Yes, don't, don't get me wrong, it is different, but something, there's a, an excellent speaker called Doug Stevenson. He has a really good podcast. And I think it was something he said. He basically said, um, you know, you need to go inside. Your performance is actually your job is to win focus entirely on you. And that isn't a narcissistic way. It's actually like the opposite. You're not there dependent on the reaction you get. Mm. Of course, you're there to serve your audience. You're there to to give, you know, it's about them, but your performance is about you. You cannot control their reaction. You can't control, because I know I've listened to you as a great comedian, I've listened to your episodes, and that that is about obviously getting the laughs. So I can understand mm. how from a comedian perspective, you if you don't get the laughs, you haven't done your job. Mm. But more in a speaking perspective, your job is to do your job. And almost regardless of, of the reaction, you do your job anyway you know, to the best of your ability. Does that kind of make sense? So the way I view that is I want the interaction, obviously, but that will come if I do my job well. Mm. And if I am on a webinar, I have to sort of disengage from, because I can't see the reaction, I have to not be affected by it and just do my job. I think that, uh, I think it comes down to the fact that I, when I'm, I'm speaking, I need the reaction. I need the energy of other people. I can't do it on my own exactly and I think that's the difference and that that will be you know say we were working together I you know I work with people in different ways of to be and that that's the really interesting thing you've learned because you'd be that type of speaker my guess would be a natural mm-hmm. is relation if you're very relationally driven that's great because you've learned about yourself and go I'm the best kind of speaker I can be when the interaction is there mm-hmm. so yeah I'm absolutely not saying webinars are for everyone but I think I don't want to shut that down and say I don't do webinars because I hope I can still use my strengths of enthusiasm empathy compassion you know I can do that and I don't have to have the interaction because I take that energy within um in that situation is, is that the difference between introvert and extrovert an introvert takes their energy from within an extrovert takes their energy from without or I simplified that too much Possibly, and that within the, the test I use, I'm I you know people can be very extroverted or introverted, and I am a combination of the two. So you're mm. absolutely bang on there. Potentially, I go into my raw introverted space if I can't get the energy. But yes, with a live audience, I would feed off them and take some of their energy. But I don't have to have it. I can mm. I can go inwards or externally. Yeah, I hadn't no. thought about that before. I need it. <laughs> Yeah, and that would come out in your sort of profile. That's one mm. of the things I do with people. That's why I, I use nature and nurture together. You know, the nature is your natural strengths mm. that are innate, and the nurture are those beliefs. Again, coming back to what we've talked about, you know, what can we set yourself free from that isn't yours? They've been that's been given to you by other people. Let's mm. get rid of that. Play to your strengths. Release your natural confidence, and there's you at your best. And I call that five percent genius. There you are. Play to that. And absolutely do what energizes you the most because you'll do it to the best of your ability. Mm. Yeah. Right. I, do, do you know, we're, we're out of time. Oh, we're, 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 we're out of time. So b- before we wrap up, um, if somebody wants to, to get in touch with you, to, to work with you with your, your build mechanism, or to, use you, or to, to hire you for um, a speaking gig, yes. what is the best way for them to, to reach out? Probably just via my website, cat-williams.com, on LinkedIn, Cat Williams, um, on Instagram, at catstaycalm. They would be the easiest ways to find me, I would say. Okay. And I will put links to all of those 
below the podcast, so if you're watching on YouTube, it'll be in the description. If you're listening on iTunes or Spotify, it'll be below the, the podcast, including the link to the TEDx talk, Cat. That will be there. Thank you, Darren. Proudly well. own that. <laughs> own it. Own it. Everyone's heard my limiting thoughts on that one. <laughs> I mean, you brought a toilet onto the stage. It's going to live forever. It is. No one else is ever going to do that, I don't think. You know, I'm happy to be proved wrong, but I think I'll be the only one with a toilet on the TEDx stage. If they do, it's just it's just copying you. So, exactly. Yeah. So thank you very much for joining me. Um, I've really enjoyed this one. Thanks. You're very welcome. <laughs>